This episode of Mate was made possible thanks to Open Universities Australia, where you can now study single module postgraduate units from leading Australian universities without having to enrol in a full university degree. To find out more, head to open.edu.au. This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. Today, we're talking to Alison Mychalk, who is the founder of Quip, Australia's leading community management provider. She's also the founder of Swarm Conference, which is Australia's only dedicated conference for online community managers. Today, we talk about some really fascinating topics like social media, what Facebook's doing right and wrong, what's the difference between community management and social media management, that old chestnut and what she's learned being an entrepreneur from some of her biggest failures. Let's go talk to her. So, who are you and what do you do? My name's Alison Mychalk. I'm the CEO and founder of Quip, which is a company I've been running for seven years. I also run Swarm Conference, which is a conference for community managers, and I'm very involved in the community management industry. Great. Thanks for coming on the show, Alison. Um, it sounds like you're very involved in social media in your day-to-day. What got you excited about social media? Well, I have a background working with online communities, so traditionally forums. That's actually my sort of real love is online communities. And then when Facebook came along about 10 years ago, you know, a lot of brands and companies were asking about how do we do this online engagement thing, which is something that I've been doing for a long time. So, yeah, that's sort of how it came to be. Would you say that forums are dead or are they still alive and well these days? They are alive and well. I believe that many of the most sort of active, thriving, engaged communities on the internet still exist on forum platforms. Um, Social media can be quite limited in in a lot of aspects when it comes to running communities. So, And I think we're seeing a bit of a shift back to brands owning their own communities because of the limitations of, you know, I guess... Letting Facebook own everything. <laughs> yeah, they're eating the world um, from from multiple angles. Forums have been around for many years, I guess, since the inception of the internet. Some of the very early uh, conversations and um, interactions people were having were through very primitive forum software. But in terms of quote-unquote forum, not a lot has changed since then to today in terms of how they operate. You know, it's a very, like, linear model I don't know. It's like it's weird that like that hasn't changed a lot over over time. What do you what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think that it hasn't changed over time because it works so well. It just hasn't had to yeah, iterate. Sure. So it's been around for decades. And although social media has a very real time aspect to it, it is very now. Um, forums are great one for information management. They they are the largest sort of repository of information online, and it is for the, because of that very nature that you can participate when it suits you. So, it's great for asynchronous communication where I think a lot of, say, Facebook threads and discussions um, and chat, it's all very now. Um, And that's what's actually great about forums and the reason that they haven't evolved. But yes, people sort of look at them and think, oh, they sort of look so old and so dated, but I think they do (laughs) what they do really well. I mean, we have seen some sort of improvements, whether that's, you know, being able to tag people and, you know, things that people are used to from social media. But overall, um, I don't think there's a lot of ways to iterate forums. Yeah, okay. Maybe they just need like a new coat of paint. Like I, a lot of the benefits you mentioned there I hadn't thought of, but I tend to agree, you know, like this asynchronous communication. Um, they're all very much indexed by Google. You know, if you search for how do I do X, um, a lot of the top results come from uh, a forum posting uh, quite quite often, particularly if it's, you know, a niche topic or, or something that has some speciality around it. So, um you know, I think maybe maybe you're right. All, all the kind of benefits really remain. We just need to give it a bit of a, um, a visual kind of update so that people don't feel like they're using technology from the 1970s. Yeah, and I think there's some there are some platforms that do that a bit better. But yeah, the breadth and depth of of knowledge in forums is still second to none. I mean, if you think about your own. You know, how many times have you gone on Facebook and searched for content? I mean, it's just not how we use Facebook. You might occasionally yep. look for something, um, but, you know, forums, like you say, they're, they're indexed really well by Google and they so often um, 
come up. And I think, you know, some people try and make forums look better and, you know, have a big image at the top and things. But I think at the end of the day, people are there for the text. They're there for the content. So I think it can it can look ugly. But if you're in one, you understand the, you know, just how beneficial they are. So you worked, I guess, like moderating forums and nurturing online communities. So how did that um, evolve into this business that you started, Quip? Prior to Quip, I was working at Fairfax Digital on Essential Baby, which is one of the largest online communities in the country. So they have a quarter of a million users. During my time there, I was managing a volunteer moderator team of about 30. That was around the inception of Facebook. So that was when I was getting a lot of questions about online engagement. And I sort of thought, oh, this would be a great model if I had a team and I could actually, you know, I was always sort of willing to help people. And I started running roundtables for community managers and that's actually what evolved into the Swarm conference. But yeah, so I sort of thought, oh, this would be great if I could actually do this for for a job and I took the leap and um, thankfully it worked out. So, tell me a little bit about Quip and, and how it works. Like, what do you guys do and what's the value proposition? Sure. Okay. Well, at Quip, we connect people and communities to do business better and we do that through online communities. So, say the forums we've spoken about and also social media. Uh, we operate 24-7 and we have a large team. So, lots of companies choose to work with us because they know they can hire a lot of community managers to help with, with the full range of hours in the week. So, maybe we should actually define what community management is because uh, actually in some of the discussions that I've had with people recently, there's a bit of confusion about what a community manager is versus what a social media manager is and we can kind of get into that debate if you want but... Um, Let's maybe start off by defining what community management is. Sure. So, I see community management as being the business of ensuring productive communities. So, understanding what the business objectives are and working out how you align that community with achieving that. So, you obviously have a very different strategy if you're working with forums to if you're working with social media. They are very different skill sets. So, it has been really confusing for the industry that it's the roles have the umbrella term of community management, but within the remit of the social media management, there's so many other parts to that. So, I think that we'll see better clarification as time goes on. What does like a day-to-day activity of a community manager actually look like then? Community manager looking after forums might be managing a large team of moderators and they might be working to objectives such as increasing customer loyalty or even increasing customer spend, or they might be have objectives around decreasing call center costs. So the call center costs might be quite high per call and they know that they can service that more cheaply and more effectively through the forum. So that would be managing, say, super users, making sure the correct answers are in the forum. Um, it would be looking at the conversion funnel of how many people come to the site. Do they sign up? Do they post? Do they stick around? What can we do at each point of that conversion funnel to... Um, yeah, to get people through to becoming you want a core group of active members to sustain the forum. Um, so all those bits and pieces, yeah, and obviously you know, you know, it depends on the size of the community and what type of community it is. But the social media day to day is kind of interesting because you could look at ten different advertised roles and they would be ten completely different roles that all called social media manager roles. So I think some are really content and production heavy. Some roles might be more around acquisition and you need a lot of experience with advertising. Content's a big piece of that. Um, obviously, there's challenges around organic reach not existing anymore. So, how do you actually get people yeah. to see your content? And, and then again, working to, you know, the business objectives that you have. So, talking about business objectives then, you mentioned a few. I think things like um, decreasing call center costs is probably a fairly obvious one because we know that social media and kind of like online communities, forums, other styles like uh, like Telstra's crowd support, I guess, is like a, um, a, a style of forum. You know, those kinds of communities uh, will reduce the burden on call centers and live chat and that kind of thing. So, I think that one's, that one's obvious. But when we talk about like increasing loyalty and increasing spend, those are more marketing-driven objectives, I suppose, rather than operations. I want to ask, like, what, what are some examples of how you can increase loyalty and increase spend through really effective um, management and nurturing of a community? 
Well, I guess if you're, say, a, a bank, for example, and you have a self-managed super fund option, you might run a community around self-managed super funds, and then you're actually going to be getting people that are learning about how to do that, and then they'll be actually putting more money into their super fund, investing it, and so forth. But they need the knowledge and information and support to do that because it's quite a complicated area. So if they join your forum, become an active member, they're going to have an affinity with your brand if it's a good experience, but they're also going to learn and as a result spend more and as a result probably stick around if you do all the things right. So, you know, that's an example there. You know, if you jump over to something like the non-profit space, we work with Beyond Blue and, you know, they know that from having people that come and participate in their forums have better mental health outcomes because, again, they're getting support, knowledge and information and learning from the peer experiences um, and actually better managing their mental health. So there's some really great benefits of, of that shared knowledge and information and how that helps you meet your objectives, which might be around your yeah, retention or, or spend or loyalty. Do you find that the brands you work with engage you guys because they are looking to um, fill uh, their kind of outside of office hours community management and kind of bolster their maybe internal team? Uh, or are you guys working with them because uh, they need actual help with the skill set that's required to build a engaged and um, nurtured and, and you know, um, really great online community? Well, it's definitely both. So, we would work with some companies that have amazing in-house teams, um, but those people go home at the end of the day, we take over. So, that sort of speaks to your first point, but then some companies don't have that in-house expertise and that's what they want. So, they might engage us from the very beginning to help them with the strategy and the risk frameworks and escalation charts and on all the beginning, the governance piece. And then we might help them hire someone or we might train or mentor someone that they hire. So we might work with them for three, six or 12 months or so in that period of of helping them get the skills that they need internally. Awesome. I want to ask you about this kind of outside of business hours thing in just a sec. You were talking about building governance frameworks and escalation processes and all that kind of stuff. How do you sell in your services? And, And the reason I ask that is because a lot of the kind of tasks and um, outcomes that we spoke about don't necessarily have financial outcomes attached to them. So, how do you like, it's almost like what's the ROI of working with you guys? The objectives do vary from client to client, but I think if you're, it comes down to how they're measuring that ultimately. And that's not something that always sits with us depending on what access we have to customer data because often we don't. So, um, it, it really varies as to how well they're tracking their objectives. I mean, I think you're right. Lots of people sort of jumped in years ago and weren't really sure. It was like socials just something that we have to do. But I think it moved to a, a yeah, necessary and then it moved to, um, you know, needing it 24-7. And I think that I sat on a panel the other week with one of the social media managers from Lorna Jane and her team had gone from one to four full-time staff. And I thought, well, there's evidence of, of you know, it's a perfect example of ROI. They're a brand that does fantastically on social media to quadruple your team in the space of a year. Um, it is, is right off the back of posting content that performs. You know, they talked about the, the spend that they would bring in off a single Instagram post and it was, it was really quite phenomenal. So, let's talk about remote work and managing a a remote team. So, well, and I guess like in a way shift work uh, because, you know, the workforce that you employ is, you know, not based in a single call center or building or whatever. People can kind of work from anywhere because it's an online job that they're doing, which is great. Have you kind of run into any challenges through the night or working outside of an office? Like, what, what are some of the things that have kind of come up with that? Well, I think for me, my motivation in starting the business was I wanted freedom and I wanted flexibility. I was pregnant with my second child. He was actually three weeks old when I started the business. So, freedom and flexibility were sort of almost non-negotiable. As the company quickly grew, I thought, well, this is something that I want to extend to other people. I don't think it makes sense in a lot of ways having an office these days, Um, certainly not from an environmental perspective, having people commute and so forth. That's how we grew and it means that we've been able to hire amazing people um, because we're not limited by them being in, in a capital city. 
The challenges I think that I've seen with remote work actually usually come from if you have a head office and the way the people that are remote sort of feel left out or don't get to participate in serendipitous conversations where I think because we don't have a head office, we've avoided a lot of those um, problems. We use Workplace for our social network, which is Facebook's Workplace, and it, it works mm-hmm. really well. So, um, you know, it's very appropriate. Yeah, you know, and being community managers, we know how to use a we know how to use a social network well. So, um, yeah, it's a great place for for the company. But you know, I really think that distributed teams are the way things are going and the way they should be. I think it gives people a lot better work life blend, um, and that's something that we also try to help foster at Quip. We understand that you know other people. Our staff have lots of other cool things going on in their lives and um, we want to help facilitate those rather than just say, oh, well, that's something that you do outside of working for us. Let's maybe dig a bit deeper in this, um, the, f- the future of work being remote. Uh, you mentioned an interesting uh, term there that I picked up on, work-life blend, uh, very different to the overused work-life balance. Uh, so, do you think that remote work is the future of work? I think so. I mean, I think once you do it, it's um, why would you go back? You know, I think it's yeah. been really great for us. So, the vast majority of our staff, myself and my general manager and my business development manager included, do not work full-time and we choose not to work full-time. I live outside of Sydney, so I'm not saddled with a Sydney mortgage. So, for me, it gives me a way better lifestyle most people that work for us have something else going on, whether they're doing a PhD or they've got children or they're traveling. We had one guy did 20 countries in 20 months when he worked for us. Yeah, wow. One of our staff members is um, a, a musician and she's based in Berlin doing really awesome stuff. Yeah, so we've just got people doing really interesting things and working for us. So I think that we approach people very holistically and we sort of say, what are you hoping to achieve professionally this year and what are you hoping to achieve personally and how are those two things going to work together? And, you know, lots of people say, oh, well, you know, it looks like about 20 to 30 hours a week would be great. So we try and meet the hours that they like um, per week and give them time to do the other stuff that they're trying to achieve. I like that. I like that. Uh, what, uh, what do you mean when you say work-life blend? Well, yeah, it's a sort of a term that um, I use because I think balance sort of gives you this visual of, well, it gives me a visual of like a seesaw and then like two diametrically opposed things that you're trying to make work together. And I think, you know, especially <laughs> Sometimes it feels that way. <laughs> it can, it can, you know. I think being a parent too adds a whole other layer of complexity to see how they fit together, you know, how do they work together rather than how do I sort of manage both of them in this sort of tipping seesaw type thing, you know. I work from home and and I love that because I can go and hang washing on the line or put the dishwasher on or do something and it means I'm getting some housework stuff done. But, of course, while I'm doing it, I'm thinking, oh, I should write that email, I've got to get that report to that person. So, it's still time, it's productive, you know, it's covering off two bases. I don't know how people get home from work and then also manage kids and, and housework <laughs> and everything. So, um, I feel really lucky, but at the same time, I'm like, I would just burn out if this wasn't, if I didn't have this option. I've just started a business uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, I haven't spoken a lot about it publicly, but um, it's been really, really challenging. Starting a business is the worst thing you can ever do. Don't do not do it. If anyone's listening, don't do it. Um, <laughs> but it's super rewarding, right? It is really rewarding, but it's really hard. Don't do it with a three-week-old baby. Oh, well, that's what I was going to say. You mentioned that before. Like, I can't believe you started a business with a three-year-old, a three-week-old. Um what were you thinking? <laughs> I was clearly delusional, but I'd been commuting to Sydney. So, I was also like, I can't commute. Like, I actually physically can't commute and breastfeed a child. Like, it's just too hard. Um, it's not possible. So, yeah, <laughs> I didn't expect the business to take off in the way that it did. We did land a federal government contract, I think, 10 days after I launched the business. So, I hired like 12 Oops. people <laughs> in the space of 48 hours. Um, so, that was a little bit crazy. But yeah, I mean, the first couple of years were intense. You know, they were like 12, 14 hour days at times and so forth. Um, 
but I hired a general manager about three years ago. I think that's right. And that was a real, that was a turning point for the business and definitely helped me sort of step back a bit. This episode of Mate was made possible thanks to Open Universities Australia. With Open Unis, you now have the flexibility of studying single-module postgraduate units from leading Australian universities without having to enrol in an entire degree. So, this is perfect if you're a busy professional, um, you don't have to go to night school or anything like that. This is a brand new initiative that Open Unis has created, which allows you to upskill for your current role or maybe take the first steps towards a new one. And they have a really broad range of subjects that you can learn about. Things like technology essentials for managers or financial decision making. Or perhaps if you just want to learn something new, maybe you could study cyber terrorism and information warfare or democracy and dictatorship. There's over 100 units to choose from on topics from business to economics, technology, media to law. There's so many more. So, instead of going to night school, why not work in a way that's flexible for you? Uh, You can work in your own time and learn about some really fascinating topics. To find out more about how to study a single unit from a leading Australian university with Open Universities Australia, head to open.edu.au. And thank you very much to Open Unis for your support of MATE. So, a lot's been said in the media lately and uh, I guess a lot of commentators in, in you know, social media and, and that kind of thing about messaging. It's, it's a bit of a mega trend. You know, we're seeing a lot of people spend more time on messaging. Um, a lot of people are writing about chatbots now, actually. And there's, I guess, a, a bit of fear that chatbots are going to be the future of customer service. Do you agree with that? Look, I'm excited about chatbots. Um, I think... You know, it's it's an exciting time, but I don't think they're going to take over our jobs anytime soon, not if the current bots are anything to go by. But I sort of see them similar to moderators, like someone's going to have to manage their scripts and manage the issues and then calls are always like still going to get escalated to a human. Um, you're going to want to rewrite some of the stuff that needs to be updated. Like they're still going to require management, which is kind of what community managers do anyway. So I sort of see that we'll definitely still need a human element. I mean, bots, not like no time in the foreseeable future are they going to be able to completely do everything. And the, the thing that they can't do, which is, you know, the absolute crux of community management is relationship building. They're not going to get that right. I've actually been playing with this mental health bot called Wobot, which I just think is the best name ever. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it's quite interesting engaging with them because they're a mental health bot. So that part they sort of need to, to get right. So it's interesting because the topic of mental health is such a personal one, which is why I wanted to sort of play with it and see. But, yeah, so in answer to your question, I, I don't think they're going to take away community managers' jobs. If anything, everything is going to go into Messenger and we're going to see more customer service and more community management happening within Messenger. So I see it as being a massive opportunity for the industry. Right. So, so you believe in the messaging mega trend, but disagree with, uh, with chatbots taking all of our jobs. Yes, absolutely. I mean, great. They can answer like the low level questions that community managers have to answer every day. I mean, community managers don't want to do that. Community managers have better things to do with their time than cut and paste the same answer to things. So if anything, it'll help community managers deal with the more challenging things or um, focus on the the whole inter-organization sort of stuff of like, you know, getting the company to understand the role and get support from stakeholders and all that sort of stuff that bots can't do. Community managers are just going to have more time to to focus on that. So, I see it being a win. Personal responses and, you know, being like really uh, tailored and and that kind of thing. Like, it's it's really easy to tell when something's not a human. You know, I've engaged with, you know, bots before and or, or even it's even easy to tell when someone's just not engaged in a conversation. There's a really uh, fine line between unengaging and something that really hits the mark. And the difference in terms of the output is not a huge amount. It could be a couple of words or the way something's phrased. But the feeling you get from it is such a huge difference. 
Do you guys like have training internally or, or ways to kind of really build empathy so that people don't feel like even though you're copying and pasting responses in a lot of circumstances, maybe because there's, you know, governance or legal compliance things you have to deal with, how do you, you know, make it feel like it's not a bot or whatever? Yeah, well, I mean, I think empathy is a massively important part of the community manager's skill set. And I don't know if that's always recognized or hired for. So, you know, we often see social media manager roles and it's like, you know, must be a social media ninja and must be like the life of the party and must be on every platform. But the majority of community managers I know are actually introverts. And it's not about being the life of the party. It's actually about facilitating other people's engagement and other people, like, you know, many-to-many conversations. So I sort of think that being on the edge and understanding social dynamics as an introvert is is more important um, and empathy is part of that. So that um, is partly why we created the Code of Ethics for Community Managers because we sort of saw brands engaging, you know, engagement at any cost where they would post stuff that was potentially offensive because it was going to drive engagement and we were like, no, no, that's not right. As community managers, we should be creating safe and welcoming spaces online and not ostracizing people through this type of content or this type of responses. But, you know, look, in answer to your question, how much responsibility the community manager gets to have over how much they get to sort of play really depends on the brand. Some brands play a lot better and are a lot more sort of risk-taking in their tone of voice. And that is often great and fun and can lead to great engagement, but there's always a line. So it's, it's definitely more risky. You can cross it and it doesn't always work out. But yeah, and then you've got brands on the other end of the spectrum that are very conservative and really want everything um, pre-approved and looked at. And, you know, they're, they're not there to take risks. They're actually there to tell the C-suite that we went on Facebook and nothing bad happened. <laughs> so, you sure? Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> I agree. There's definitely some brands that play better in the social space. You know, we kind of talked earlier about like 7-Eleven. Uh, they, they post jokes and memes and stuff and they, they're almost like a little bit provocative to their fans um, and actually mock people who, uh, who you know, write a silly or stupid response. Um, so, uh, that maybe has a, a bit of a code of ethics um, question around it. But, you know, they're, they're a bunch more fun and engaging brand. Things like Boost Juice or Lorna Jane, you know, they're a lot more, I guess, youthful, so they can pull off the the meme or the the kind of trendy uh, tone of voice better. I'm more curious in uh, how do you behave as like a bank or an insurance company or a government organization and still really engage a community when you have a very, um, I don't want to say boring, but like a, a very straight and uh, proper tone of voice and, and brand that you have to abide to. Yeah, I mean, look, I think a lot of banks don't have goodwill towards them. So, them making jokes or being too jovial, it's not the right place because lots of people are annoyed <laughs> annoyed at banks. So, you know, you have to start with how do your customers feel about you um, and sort of take that into account. But I think, you know, like looking at banks, it's I, I see it as a really fascinating topic because everyone cares about money and it's not about money. It's about hopes and dreams and aspirations and owning houses and whatever it might be, travel and so forth. So, there's like a wealth of, of great content that you can create around that sort of stuff. So it's looking for, for the right angle, I guess. And, yeah, banks sort of have a lot to play with in, in that regards. But, yeah, their tone of voice is very important. So getting that right and getting that consistent across a team is something that you need to do carefully. Financial services is highly regulated, so understanding the ins and outs of all the things that you can't do and can't say forms part of that as well. Yeah, a lot of the uh, answers and, and discussion that we've had today have been kind of like an it depends response. Um, and that's <laughs> that's nothing against um, you or, or, or your knowledge or anything like that. It's, a, it's actually maybe a positive because uh, it's showing that, um, you know, you tailor your business and your solutions to each client and each brand on an individual level. Uh, but maybe what I'm kind of wondering is like if we abstract um, out and go kind of a level higher, um, what are some of the, the principles maybe that you have to be aware of when you're approaching community management for um, any brand? Uh, what are some of the questions that you ask yourself in the beginning to help you get that right tone of voice, that right angle, that right legal um, fine line that you're walking and, and making sure you're abiding within 
any um, regulations, but but still delivering um, on the business results that you need. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think because we work across, you know, commercial and, and government and non-profit, that is kind of is hard for me to answer, um, not in an it-depends way, just because it's such a, you know, it's such a broad range of clients that we have. But, yeah, look, speaking to your point, I mean, it comes back to marketing and brand persona sort of stuff, like who are we and who are our customers and, um, and just understanding your audience. And, um, you know, you really, you, yeah, you really need to understand them to get them right. So it comes back to like a lot of like basic marketing principles. That's where you start. Let's, uh, let's talk about the issues uh, and maybe some opportunities that are occurring in social at the moment. Social's had a long um, and tumultuous relationship with uh, consumers. Uh, I remember back in the days when Facebook would, you know, update their layout or, or change a feature and uh, the whole network would just go haywire for a couple of days. How could they change this? You know, I liked it the old way, change it back. And then they've also had a very tumultuous relationship with the people that work on the platform. There was the kind of apocalypse of uh, organic reach um, many years back and and Facebook became a paid platform. There's um, uh, social networks that, uh, you know, make it really difficult to to log in as an administrator. You have to authorize all kinds of crazy things like that, you know, endless technical issues and bugs and all that kind of stuff. What obligation do these networks and I guess like technology companies owe to their stakeholders? Um, and I'm not talking about customers, but more like what, what do they owe to uh, the businesses that engage on those platforms? It's a big topic and it's an interesting one. I think the biggest shift that we've seen happen with Facebook is them moving from this position that we're a utility, what happens on our platform has got nothing to do with us. To all of them, you know, they well, it's not all of a sudden. It took them 10 years to realise actually they do have a lot of responsibility around the content on the platform and that was driven a lot of, you know, by the fake news and live video and things that they've had to moderate and deal with. So I see Facebook being in a really interesting position where for the first decade they didn't really give us a lot of tools to work with. You know, you could go and use a forum platform from the 1980s that has better moderation functionality than Facebook. So, I mean, this is why the entire industry of social media management exists. It exists to manage these conversations on Facebook and it's made all the harder because we don't have the the tools and so forth. So, you know, we're beginning to see a lot of those changes come through and I think that things like, you know, Facebook have said you can link pages to groups. I think they're understanding the value of groups. They're understanding the value of community and, of course, they're going to monetize that so they're going to have to come up with better tools for brands to manage these conversations i mean as you said facebook's eating the world from a whole heap of different angles yeah so i think that you know they want us to stay on facebook for longer and you know the way that they're going to need to do that for brands anyways give community managers yeah better tools to facilitate those discussions do you think Facebook's doing this out of an altruistic point of view or where they're trying to help, you know, community managers and, and businesses to connect better with their customers? Or are they just trying to figure out ways to get customers to spend more time on the channel and figure out ways to monetize that time better? Um, it's, a bit yeah. of, it's a bit of a leading question, but... <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of altruism going on at Facebook HQ. <laughs> um, sorry, Mark Zuckerberg, but this latest mission statement around, you know, we want to bring the world together or whatever it is. I mean, the bit missing from that sentence is we want to bring the world together on Facebook. Um, you know, they want people to be on Facebook more and that's how they're going to bring the world together. And I'm not saying no good can come of that. I mean, I think I believe in the power of communities. So I actually see that there's a lot of opportunities for people to connect on Facebook. They're a commercial business at the end of the day, which I think a lot of people forget. That frames the decisions that they make absolutely. And I think they were challenged by that for so long that they sort of, I don't know, maybe went down paths and I wonder if they would change their decision, if they could revisit them. I don't know. You know, I think that if they'd built the platform with community in mind from the start, it would be a very different platform. And I think what's interesting in terms of the, I guess, the ethical question that you're posing around their intentions is, you know, I think there is more of a shift around people. Well, there's more talk anyway about creating software that's good for people. So 
Um, there's a really great TED talk by a guy, Tristan Harris, who's an ex-Google engineer, and he sort of proposes that we should be designing software in ways that's better for humans, not necessarily only about, you know, about monetizing platforms. Like, isn't there a way to do both? And mm -hmm. an example he gives is like, you know, how Netflix just automatically plays the next episode, which can be great, but it's not great eight hours later when you've watched a whole season and didn't do something with your day. So, you know, that's a way to keep you on and make you to watch more. But I don't know, is there a limit to that? Could you set that you don't want to do that or you only want to watch three episodes or something? So I think that, yeah, that's an interesting concept anyway. And some of the things you were saying before, like Facebook could have been better designed to foster better communities. I mean, some of that comes down to just the whole premise of Facebook um, in itself. I mean, it's about connecting people, not about connecting communities and not about connecting people to brands either. Like these are things that have got tacked on and kind of bolted to the service later on. In the beginning, it was just about, you know, you and me being friends and connecting and connecting with people in our kind of inner circle. So, I think some of these problems are symptomatic of the actual way the platform has been built. It feels like we're on a bit of a Facebook bash here. Uh, and look, they probably deserve their fair of bash uh, as much as um, any other large company. They're, they're one of the more valuable and profitable um, internet businesses these days. But can we trust Facebook? And I guess maybe the, the follow-up question is, do we even have a choice? I agree that Facebook just sort of bolted things on and added things and they were like, we need to make money, let's do it this way. So I think they didn't start with a clear revenue model and that was their problem. So everyone was on it and they had millions of people and then they sort of had to fold in ways to make money and they've sort of kept doing that um, in a very ad hoc fashion. So I think that you're right. I mean, it started out with the original vision of connecting people and, yeah, obviously they need to make money to do that and have, yeah, Throwing, throwing a few things on here and there and all over the place. But um, can we trust them? I mean, I think they have an unprecedented amount of power. The amount of influence that they have on the world is actually, you know, could be quite scary if you, if you think about it. Facebook can call the shots at the end of the day. They're a commercial enterprise. They're privately owned. You know, they actually don't have any obligation to adhere to things that we think they should or shouldn't do. So in many regards, I feel positive in a way that at least they're trying to see that they could have a better mission and a better purpose, whether or not they execute that, that's, that's the challenge. Um, do we have a choice? Oh, there seems to be like a growing movement around opting out of, you know, being on technology too much. So I think that we all sort of jumped on and got in there and did everything, like, you know, especially like early adopters. And now it's part of life 10 years later, but it's still early. So I think we'll see younger people, maybe, I don't know, like maybe growing up with better moderation or, or, or more emphasis on time out from social and so forth. But I don't know. Oh, it's interesting to see. You were talking about the amount of power that Facebook has. In in technology circles, we refer to Facebook as one of the four horsemen. You know, you have Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon as kind of the four companies that are going to define much of the rest of our life from a technology standpoint and, and really from an everything standpoint because technology permeates every part of life these days. So, uh, they do have a huge amount of responsibility and a lot of different stakeholders to please Wall Street being one of those. So how do they how do they make money and and make profits without pissing off users and that kind of thing? And you see this like they they're testing different ad formats. Um, like having ads in Messenger, for example, uh, is something that's that they're they're testing at the moment. I've seen some screenshots leaked around the internet of that. And and like, is that the right thing to do? How do people feel about that? Um, I heard this morning. I don't know if I can find some evidence of this, but they were testing pop up ads in the newsfeed. So, like, that's uh, a crazy uh, a crazy idea and, like, should should they do that? I don't know. Um, these are the big questions about companies when you have so much power and so much influence on people's lives. Uh, I don't know whether they're going to do the right thing about it. Uh, we, we've seen some hints of that, um, but we've seen some blunders as well along the way. So, uh, I don't know if there's a, a positive out. Do you think there's a positive outlook? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, they're going to find ways to make money off the platform and they're going to have to and, you know, people say they're going to leave but they won't. 
but you know, I think in terms of influence and things like fake news is concerning and like live content that gets streamed, like all that stuff sort of concerning. And you know, it is easy to criticize their management of live content, but I mean, it, it's just phenomenal. No one, no one's ever had two billion people online posting content. So, um, you know, they they have a serious challenge. Yeah, but it's a little bit self-inflicted as well. Like, I don't know if it was Mark Zuckerberg or someone from Facebook uh, said managing this kind of stuff is really hard, fake news. And like, in the beginning, they weren't taking any responsibility for it. And then they kind of said, all right, we'll we'll try and do something about it. But the outcome is it's really difficult to manage this. And live content, like how long is it going to be before we see somebody see a murder live streamed on Facebook Live or a suicide? You know, God forbid, I would hate to... Um, for, for any anything like that to happen, but it, it's probably inevitable at some point. Facebook, yeah, sure, it, it's difficult to manage people streaming this kind of stuff, but it's sort of, <laughs> you created the beast, you built the monster, so you do have a responsibility to own that now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, both of those things have been streamed. There's been horrific stuff streamed and the people that are, you know, have to moderate this content all day, I can only imagine the sort of stuff that they do have to see. But yes, I mean, I think this is the problem with them changing tact 10 years in because if they, yeah, I mean, you have to weigh out the pros and cons. Is beneficial content going to be live streamed? Absolutely. Like, are we going to call into question whether it's police brutality or, you know, uprising somewhere? Like, is there, is there going to be benefits? Absolutely. Are there going to be downsides? Yes. And how do we manage those? And I think that, yeah, because it hasn't sort of necessarily been designed in mind. I mean, the obvious solution, staring them in the face, is use the two billion people that you have on Facebook to help you moderate the content. You know, and that's what you have to do in any community is say, these are our norms, these are our values, this is the content that we will and won't allow. And it might be something as small as, say, like on Essential Baby, we encourage people to post links to research. Don't say, oh, this is better for your child or, you know, we wouldn't let people discuss medicine or, you know, things like that. You know, we wouldn't let them discuss doctors, but you have to have these rules and you have to consistently reinforce them for years and years and years and years and get your members to reinforce them and that's how you build community culture. The problem with Facebook is it isn't one community, obviously, but, you know, these norms never really got set because they were like, oh, it's not up to us. We're just a utility. I mean, when you report content on Facebook, do you have any faith that anybody sees it? You know, and we've seen that come up in the nope. news where, you know, people sometimes get responses and the response is, no, that's fine. We're going to allow that content. And the content is absolutely horrific. <laughs> Yeah. And Vanessa Paik, who is a woman that I run Swarm Conference with, wrote a great article recently just about the gendered aspect of the of the moderation guidelines. You know, were they not as favorable to women in some of the aspects around how like violent posts and things were treated? And they have they have a thing called credible threats. So they sort of accept they would only remove content if they deemed it a credible threat. And how they defined that in their moderation policy was kind of frightening. <laughs> so, yes, um, I don't know what the original beginning of this question was, but... <laughs> yeah. That's okay. I, I think... Um... <laughs> You gave me a good segue point there, uh, Swarm Conference. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up on that and, and finish on a bit of a lighter note. Sure. Uh, so, I want to enter this kind of last um, segment um, focusing on entrepreneurship and another business or another initiative, I suppose, that you've started is Swarm Conference. So, tell me about that and then we can, we can kind of um, have a bit of fun with this uh, entrepreneurship topic. Yeah, great. We'll, light, we'll lighten the mood. Swarm Conference has been running for six years. So, as I mentioned earlier, it was born out of roundtables. So, when I was at Essential Baby, I was like, oh, there must be other people running online communities. And there actually wasn't that many in Australia, but I think we had people from Disney and people from Lonely Planet and, you know, some really big communities like that. So, um, I think Disney had like Club Penguin and um, there was also Habbo Hotel and a few sort of virtual worlds and things. Anyway, we started those roundtables and then eventually we said, let's just do one big conference. So, we get around 100 community managers. We do get social media managers, but the focus is more on branded or proprietary communities. So we co-host that. Um, well, one of our main sponsors is Sydney Uni, and we have it at yeah, Sydney Uni every year. And, yeah, it's just an awesome event. And as I always joke, community managers know how to, you know, socialise. So it's a really good, really great vibe and, um, yeah, just lots of great learning opportunities. Awesome. Sounds good. Uh, so... 
I want you to tell me, uh, you know, in this entrepreneurship front, like it's it's not always easy, um, and I'm sure there's been some mistakes along the way. So, what's been like the biggest screw up you've had? <laughs> oh, well, I have to think about that, but um, I mean, you know, this business is a constantly evolving learning process and when you're a small business there's always things that you're not doing well you know so I kind of enjoy that or at all (laughs) yeah or at all absolutely like sometimes you're like oh I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that we don't you know we're still not doing this very well or that very well but you know I think that's what drives me is continuous improvement but I was trying to think of a, a big stuff up like that and it might actually it's kind of big and small in some ways but we did have someone that didn't turn up to a shift Something had happened that was completely justified, but this sort of we didn't have a mechanism in place to know whether or not someone had sort of turned up, you know, which was really major. And, you know, I take our service delivery really serious. So I was like mortified and had to sort of go in and talk to the client. And it was quite a like high risk client. So not having someone on that shift at that time was problematic and had to get escalated and so forth. So, um, yeah, I was like totally mortified, but you know, it was human error at the end of the day and we had to sort of build in some better systems around that. But being hired to do something and we, we you know, I consider it a pretty massive stuff up. It's interesting you you look at this from the perspective this was a process failure rather than a people failure, I suppose. Um because the people hadn't planned the process to, geez, that's a tongue twister. <laughs> the people hadn't planned the process to uh, to overcome a- an issue that was unforeseen. And it's only when you know something goes wrong that you can kind of go, oh wow, yeah, we should we should fix that. There's there's uh, something that we can do here to stop that from happening in the future. What did you learn from going through? And it might not be that example, but what did you learn from going through that that mistake or that failure um, about how to run business better in the future? One of the, you know, I once read this quote and I really like it. It's one of the most powerful questions that you can ask as a leader is, I don't know, what do you think? And that's something that I try and do all the time with staff is, I don't know, what do you think we should do, you know? Great. And, and give them responsibility. And in the same way, I guess the flip side of that is when something goes wrong, I ask myself, what was my involvement in that? Did I not communicate properly? Like I, I, my first point of call isn't to blame the staff member because I think if you're going to create autonomy and you want people to be involved and empowered in the business, you can't treat them like that. So it's first looking at, okay, where did I go wrong? What can I do? And then just having an honest conversation about that, but always looking in your own backyard as to whether or not, and, and, you know, owning that, saying, look, you know, maybe I wasn't clear enough in that email or maybe I didn't specify this properly. But to me, yeah, bringing it back to, you know, I guess like our cultural piece and how I want to treat our team because, you know, I think if you're asking them all the time, well, I don't know, what do you think we should do? How can we improve the business? What would you do if you were the CEO you know, you also have to take that attitude into when things go wrong collectively. Yeah, how can we fix this together and what part did I play in it? That's a really great approach. Is is that something that you picked up along the way or like did, did somebody give you that advice? Like where did you learn that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I remember really liking that quote. I think it might be a Richard Branson quote. So, the quote stayed with me because I think it's something that I do anyway. So, people have always said to me over the years, like a common thing that I see with entrepreneurs is that notion that they can't get anyone else to do the work or no one would do it as good as them. And it's almost like this culture of busyness and this culture of, you know, I work an 80, 90 hour week. I look at people doing that and say, well, you're not doing it right, okay? Like it's a business process problem or you're not earning enough money to hire people, but I don't see that as being a good thing. So I think being able to delegate and being able to trust people and give them responsibility, like sure, the job doesn't get done in the way that you would do it, but maybe they bring something else to the table, you know, maybe, and, and they do, like all my staff members have different skill sets that I, that I don't possess, so um probably just partly my sort of attitude of, you know, being a collective and, I don't know, treating people treating people fairly. And, you know, I, I guess I've had jobs where I've had terrible managers and I've been inspired to not manage like they do. Yeah, I, we all have. I think uh, sometimes those um, those jobs you, you're able to take uh, lessons from and, and uh, emulate the best parts and, and um, become a better manager by not doing the worst parts. So, uh, so yeah, maybe just observation and uh, mimicking and learning and, and behaving in those ways is, is the best way to go about it. 
Yeah, you know, and I consider it a real privilege to be able to employ people. Like you're in a position to have a really big influence on somebody's life, you know, so like why not make it a positive one? And I don't think people, you know, traditionally have not had that mentality because, you know, management's born out of that, you know, scientific factory worker principle, but knowledge work isn't like that. And I don't think that the modern world has sort of shifted so much. So, you know, and I don't know if it's a gendered thing. I don't know if women run businesses differently. I don't know. That's it's kind of like a big debate. But um mm-hmm. yeah, if you can have a positive influence and run a company where people say, I love the work that I do and I love the people that I work with and stuff like that. I mean, that's more fulfilling to me really than the bottom line. So, Alison, last couple of questions. What's exciting you right now? Community management is on the up and up. I think we're in an incredible position where I think um, community is the biggest asset that you'll own as a company. It's the most important thing that you can have. It's your customers and it's them talking to each other. So, you want to get it right because if you don't, someone else does and they're probably a competitor. So, um, you know, it's just a really great space to be in. Yeah, I'm looking forward to where that goes in the next seven plus years of Quip. That's a very bold statement. I like it. Uh, and who should I interview on Mate next? Oh, gosh, so many people. Um, uh, Vanessa Paik, who is my Swarm co-founder, is incredible font of uh, knowledge. Um, Jonathan Hutch or Dr. Jonathan Hutchson at Sydney Uni. He would also be amazing. Great. Thank you. Well, Alison, thank you for coming on the show. It's been awesome. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Mate. If you'd like to find the show notes for today's episode, head to matepodcast.com. And since we spoke so much about Facebook today, uh, you can follow Mate on Facebook by searching for Mate Podcast. I want to extend a really big thank you to Alison for today's episode. Uh, This was one of those ones where we had quite a number of technical issues and halfway through the call, we had to move to a different provider. So, all kinds of challenges that uh, sometimes you have to deal with as a podcaster and kudos to her. She came back uh, each and every single time with uh, enthusiasm and professionalism. So, uh, you may not have heard it due to some editing magic that happens in the background, but uh, I just wanted to make a note of that. Today's episode was edited by Josh Armour from Armour Pod Productions. The beautiful Mate Podcast logo was designed by Courtney Carmen, and the Mate Podcast theme music is by Nine Inch Nails, used under a Creative Commons license. Our ad music, yes, that's right, we have music for an ad because Mate has an advertiser. Thank you for coming on board. Very exciting. The music is by Ben Sound, which is also used under a Creative Commons license. You can find all the information for all the tracks used at the website matepodcast.com slash 32. That's a short link for this episode. Mate Podcast was made with love and a new set of microphones in my hometown, Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Bye for now.